Hey there. I'm Dina. Hey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So you just walk yeah. through here? We can. I it's early March in Washington, D.C., one of those crisp, sunny days that brings everybody outside. And I'm standing near the Ukrainian embassy, a short brick building with tall windows at the end of M Street in Georgetown. It's just a stone's throw from the Potomac River. Supporters have left bouquets all along the front stairs. Is this the first time you is this no, the first time here. you've been here? I've been here a bunch of times. Yeah. At the time, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was less than a week old, and the news coming out of there was dire. Uh, I'm doing a enormous amount of doom scrolling at the moment, uh, checking constantly, checking my Twitter feed, uh, checking the Telegram channels in the native Russian and Ukrainian. Uh, connecting with my former colleagues. Uh, the man know, I'm speaking with got caught in that unsettled space between the governments of Kiev and Washington. You call me Alex, um, but I'm known as uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, uh, U.S. Army retired. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. The name should ring a bell. ...to address the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence with respect to the activities relating to Ukraine and my role in the events under investigation. Two and a half years ago, he was in the Oval Office listening to a phone call between two presidents. And he heard one say to the other, said, I'd like for you to do us a favor. And doing Trump a favor. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country... Those nine words ignited a dramatic series of events, investigations, impeachment of a president, and then a White House purge. What was at stake in the phone call between President Trump and President Volodymyr Zelensky was about much more than just a favor. Ukraine wanted anti-tank missiles to defend itself from Russia, and President Trump wanted to use them as leverage. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a conversation with Alexander Vindman, what he says helps explain how in just a couple of years, we went from a controversial phone call to the largest territorial aggression in Europe since World War II. The question is how much is bl blood is spilled, how much human suffering there is, and when Putin's reign of terror comes to an end. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Alexander Vindman's backstory is the stuff of the classic American dream. A Jewish refugee from Kiev escapes from the Soviet Union. He lands in the United States and starts a new life with his brothers, a father, and a grandmother. And the early days of that journey were rather miraculously caught in Ken Burns' documentary, The Statue of Liberty. Alexander and Eugene Vindman are sitting on either side of their grandmother. We came she became from, from Kiev. They're just 10 years old. And they're wearing short pants and worn t-shirts. And, as only a child can, they sum up their dramatic arrival in the U.S. in just a few short words. And then we went to... Our mother died, so we went to Italy. And then we came here. By the time that clip resurfaced, decades later, the two were lieutenant colonels in the Army, with prime jobs working in the Trump White House. 
Eugene was deputy legal advisor at the National Security Council, focused on ethics. And Alexander was the NSC's director of European affairs. Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, and the Caucasus were central to my portfolio. So that's how Alexander Vindman found himself at the center of a firestorm that rocked the Trump presidency and ruptured relations with Ukraine as well. So I realize it's not a straight line from a controversial phone call to where we are now. But could you remind us, what was it about that phone call that President Trump was on with President Zelensky? So President Zelensky had just recently been sworn in as the president of Ukraine. He had won, when he had won the election, uh, I had scheduled a phone call uh, to show U.S. support for this new, inexperienced, energetic, earnest leader to lead his country towards democracy. The Trump administration saw Ukraine through a very different lens. Presidential advisor Rudy Giuliani was pushing the false narrative that Ukraine, not Russia, had interfered in the 2016 election. And how Ukraine was an enemy of Donald Trump. But I... And Vindman was trying to disabuse President Trump of that notion and wanted him to lift a freeze on security assistance for Ukraine. And to signal to Russia that the U.S. would be there also. But that's not how the scheduled phone call worked out. Can you talk about, as you're in that room and listening to the phone call, kind of what you were hearing and what was going through your head? I'm, I shouldn't be allowed to talk about it, but the fact is a lot of this is in the public record. I came into the call with a sense of uh, hope and foreboding, hope that we could normalize the relationship. Zelensky, as you can see, is very charismatic, very, very smart, and he has a way with people. So I thought that he had a fair chance of maybe persuading Donald Trump. But you could hear in President Trump's tone, he was monotone. I mean, Mike, Mike, I kind of slunk down in my seat, I think, as soon as I heard his tone, because I knew it wasn't going to be a good conversation. And really the only time it turned, his, his tone changed is when he used that now infamous line, I need you to do us a favor, though, in response to President Zelensky's request to purchase more javelins. Javelins. There, the missiles we're seeing blow up those advancing Russian tanks. These systems that are so critical on the battlefield in Ukraine, these systems that are allowing Ukraine to punch above its weight and to resist a, a global superpower, these are the systems that President Zelensky was asking for. These are the systems that President Trump was denying when he said, I need you to do us a favor. And the favor, you may remember, had to do with asking Zelensky to open up an investigation on then-presidential hopeful Joe Biden and his son Hunter and their activities in Ukraine. Vindman was hoping that President Trump would send a shot across Russia's bow, and instead, he asked for a favor. He created a massive scandal that resulted in Ukraine uh, becoming radioactive for several years when it should have been making those strides to be too big to fail, too big to attack. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she? And will she win? 
The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. Welcome back. We're speaking today with Alexander Vindman. And one reason I wanted to get his thoughts on the unfolding events in Ukraine is because he predicted them months ago. Just before the new year, Vindman was on MSNBC warning viewers that a generational conflict was coming, not just like the annexation of Crimea in 2014, but a huge, bloody conflict. This is going to be a combination of Syria, Ukraine, and things that we actually haven't witnessed in, in decades. This will be a massive aerial bombardment, cruise missile strikes, and uh, targeting what I think are morale targets. Then, to underscore the point, in late January, he co-authored a piece in the Council on Foreign Relations magazine, Foreign Affairs, and it said that some sort of military operation was in the works. He wrote that it wasn't so much whether it would happen, he was sure it would, but the debate was over the shape it would take. Diplomacy, he said, wasn't going to derail this. It's part of a whirlwind week of diplomacy across Europe, sparked by a massive Russian troop buildup on its border with Ukraine. At the time, Vindman predicted that there would be a full-scale Russian invasion from air, land, and sea. A month later, Russian President Vladimir Putin did just that. And Vindman said Putin has always been a proponent of hard power. Vladimir Putin is a KGB officer. He's a case officer. And he knows how to prey on, uh, on his targets, uh, whether that's hopes or fears, the two kind of basic approaches. And for a little while, not for very long, he used the hopes. Hope in the form of suggesting that U.S. and Russian relations could change, get better. Then Putin employed fear. Russia became increasingly belligerent. He gave speeches about how there were only a handful of sovereign states. Everybody else is subordinate or susceptible to coercion. He invades Georgia, orchestrates a provocation, and then launch a war in eastern Ukraine. And then from there, he's off and running. War in the Donbass, Syria, assassinations of Russian opposition leaders, the killing of former Russian agents with nuclear-grade materials in Britain. These very powerful uh, nuclear agents that could, could have easily killed hundreds, actually, or thousands. Attacks on our elections... The use of illicit finance to prop up far-right parties, uh, bounties on U.S. soldiers, all these things didn't really receive a significant response. And then Putin kept pushing until he ended up invading Ukraine. And it's unclear how all of this will play out because this hasn't worked out the way Putin expected. Putin thought Ukraine would fold. Ukrainians would um, invite Russian forces in. Russia would be able to conduct a shock and awe campaign and do very little damage, strike strategic targets, and roll into the cities. Instead, what you have unfold is a stiff resistance. He's going to need a lot more troops. Uh, at the same time, he's facing protests at home. He's facing, eventually, body bags come back in large quantities or missing by the thousands. That pressure is going to build. So it's not going to be that easy from a military perspective. Some observers say a Julius Caesar scenario is possible. The palace coup thing is interesting. I think there's a possibility, but he's been very effective at suppressing opposition. And the question is, which one of them has the fortitude to do that? It's, this is the part about war, is that it becomes endlessly complex. And 
it's hard to figure out what's going to happen the next day or two, let alone what could, how things could play out in the next month. But it's, I could tell, I could assure you of one thing, crystal clear. This is not going to end the way Putin wanted. Do you think he's going to stop at the border or do you think he's going to go further? And as he gets more desperate, does that calculus change? It does. He's cornered. He's not faced this kind of resistance. He's not calibrated to backtrack. He's calibrated to double down. But um, the reason that this is so unlikely that he's going to escalate is he has one tool. He has nuclear bludgeon. And if he uses that, that's mutually assured destruction. He's not suicidal. He's not a madman. But I want to finish this idea because American public is rightly concerned to a certain degree about this nuclear saber rattling, but it's also misplaced. The reason it's misplaced is, again, mutually assured destruction doctrine holds. But now when you see a Russian military that's so underperforming, there is zero confidence in that Russian military facing off against the enormous power of NATO. I guess the other question I had, too, is, is it possible that Zelensky didn't move forces because he didn't want to give Russia the ability to say that there was a provocation? Um, if that's the case, I would say that would have been a, a poor military calculation. From his standpoint, he didn't think war was coming. He thought what the rest of us thought, which was maybe he'll go into the Donbass and stay, right? I do think that. I didn't think, I thought he was going to do a maximalist attack from the north, east, and south. This is exactly what you wrote in your foreign affairs article, so it's not revisionist history. You saw this coming. Well, I, I, so that, that was on the heels of a New York Times piece that I published at the beginning of December that kind of called for, uh, you know, war was all but certain. We needed to bring to bear the sanctions that are now, you know, rolling in after Russia attacks. We should have started introducing them beforehand. And uh, these weapons that are flowing in now, we should have brought them in beforehand. And the troops that are flowing in now, we should have brought them in beforehand. On the conclusion that this was nearly unavoidable by the time we get to December. And again, Volodymyr Zelensky had to make some decisions about his country, and he didn't think it was going to happen. But if, he, if there was a clear assessment that it was going to happen, and we warned him, we were warning him for weeks then, then the this actions that you take, they can no longer legitimately be considered as provocative. It's defensive. And do you think he got that? Or is he, because he's a new leader, maybe he made some mistakes? I think that's part of it. But I think there's something to be said about the fact that, yes, he, he was uh, somewhat in, inexperienced. And the baggage of the Ukraine scandal caused a, a, a friction in the U.S. relationship that also adversely affected the, uh, his ability to absorb the advice we were giving him. Because we kept Ukraine at arm's length. Then all of a sudden we come in and say, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And, Vindman says, in a way the Ukrainians didn't believe us. The ties you need to have to have someone embrace that kind of advice were still frayed. We didn't spend a huge amount of time building that relationship. We weren't like a trusted friend saying, look, we've been working together for years. This is coming. What can we do to help you? We just kind of helicoptered in and, and then offered this advice. You know, all of these things are uh, endlessly complex with a lot of different factors, but that's, uh, that's not a negligible one that there was baggage from a severely harmed relationship. Before we ended our conversation, I couldn't help but ask what all this meant for Vindman personally. For years, he'd warned leaders about Russian aggression. First, he tried to warn a president, and then during the impeachment trial, he tried to tell the rest of us. In a sort of twisted way, it's all coming full circle. 
I've certainly sensed the importance of Ukraine for a while. Uh, when I when I testified in front of Congress, uh, people immediately latched onto the fact that I was born in Ukraine, even though I came to the, the U.S. when I was four years old. People thought he had a soft spot for Ukraine. He said it wasn't that at all. My commentary and my analysis was all about U.S. national security and what it meant for U.S. national security to have a strong partnership with Ukraine. That just didn't translate. It's too, it was thousands of miles away, too far away for people to kind of understand why it's important to support Ukraine, why we wanted to do everything we could to avoid this war, because all of my experience and knowledge suggested that what I thought was going to happen wasn't going to happen. Every day wishing that I was wrong. And now it's happened. And now it's happened. And now we're seeing events unfold almost faster than governments could manage them. And the prospects of a, of a larger confrontation are very, very likely also. I think also the big thing that has changed now is that I, people who didn't think much about Ukraine, the amount of, of, of support, I've, I've just been kind of stunned how everybody has rallied. That's true to a certain extent, but is that meaningful support? I have a question about it. I mean, yes, people are like showing some support, but is there a mobilization to send aid? Are people contributing resources? Are people reaching out to their congressmen? Not so much. Instead, they're putting flower bouquets on the stairs of the embassy. We live in such a prosperous country where things are so easy, we just don't understand real hardship. But we may. I mean, we're in the, at the point where some mistakes have been made over the course of a, a long time, and we haven't stayed entirely true to our values and our interests, and we might be paying the cost. That was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, U.S. Army retired. And he says all of this has changed how he feels about the country where he was born. I'm an American. That's really the only thing I've known. But I also now feel myself to be a Ukrainian-American, something that I was very reluctant to kind of acknowledge because I thought that, you know, that would, that would compromise myself somehow. But I, I could take pride in calling myself a Ukrainian-American. This is Click Here. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Click Here. Welcome back. As the fighting in Ukraine intensifies, a volunteer army of thousands of hackers from all around the world are launching cyber attacks against Russia. And their ranks include people like APT-69, a 22-year-old ex-Marine from Abilene, Texas, who talked to us about their operations. He said he remembers the moment he learned about Russia's invasion. I had just gotten into work and my fiance called me and told me that they had just invaded. So the first thing that went through my head was probably time to call the boys, time to go to work. The boys are a small band of hacktivists, all former military, that have been working together for years. They call themselves the Valet Group, 
And he says they've been quietly waging their own independent campaign against nation-state hackers. And it wasn't until recently we started kind of going after China, trying to take them down a few pegs. China targets a lot of U.S. intellectual property and intelligence. We happen to not particularly care for a lot of the cybercrime groups that come out of Russia. So we have a pretty long history of kind of trading blows with them for a bit. Groups like Reval and Conti, which have been under a lot of pressure recently. And now APT69's group says they're rushing in to help Ukraine. And then it wasn't after until Russia started messing with Ukraine again that we finally got involved with the Ukrainian IT army. The Ukrainian IT army is an all-volunteer force of cybersecurity professionals from around the world. Ukrainian officials asked for help, and hackers showed up in droves, creating telegram channels and asking for targets. So far, we have launched remote access attacks. A remote access attack is all about looking for vulnerable spots in a computer or network to break into them. We've actually been targeting industrial controller systems and SCADA networks. We've been looking to target steel mills and the automotive industry there to kind of stop a lot of the production of arms and vehicles that are being sent to Ukraine to help them fight. Ukraine cyber officials told Click Here that these kinds of attacks are forcing Russian cyber forces to play defense, which is taking away from things they might be attacking inside Ukraine. APT69 says they are finding Russian systems to be surprisingly vulnerable. At one point, you would expect, you know, for it being a government agency, you know, you expect for them to have top-of-the-line security. They better have the best of the best. But on the flip side, if you've been working in the industry for a while, you know that there's a lot of things that don't get patched when they should be patched. I think recently we found one. They were still running a RDP server that was running on Windows XP. So sometimes you find little unicorns like that. While their independent cyber attacks are welcome now, the concern is what happens after this, when peace returns. There will be a whole new cohort of expert hackers with nothing to do. Nowadays, digital warfare is just as important, if not more important. So I think this is a good precedent. It'll show people that no matter the size of the adversary, they can still stand up and cause damage. We'll bring you more from Ukraine's IT Army next week. And here are some of the important cyber and intelligence stories from this week. A top Ukrainian cybersecurity official, Viktor Zhura, told Click here that he isn't worried about Russian forces taking down the Ukrainian internet. It's surprisingly robust because Ukraine has some 6,000 internet service providers. And uh, that's, uh, that's a difference uh, between uh, Ukraine and other, especially uh, authoritarian countries uh, that uh, do not have this possibility. Uh, they are not free in doing business uh, in providing of internet and uh, they have government control over it. Uh, Ukraine is different. His bigger concern is protecting the nation's data from attack. As Russian forces close in on Kyiv, he says plans are in place to move sensitive IT information to the cloud and even to other countries. A 34-year-old Quebecois man was extradited to the U.S. last week to face multiple charges related to his role with NetWalker, a ransomware variant that targets people with phishing emails and then holds their sensitive data ransom. Canada sentenced Sébastien Vachon de Jardin last month to seven years in prison, and now he faces U.S. hacking charges. His initial federal court appearance was in Tampa, Florida, and is part of a broader effort by the Justice Department to make cyber criminals more accountable for their crimes. 
And finally, President Joe Biden signed an executive order on cryptocurrency. It directs federal agencies, including the Department of Justice and Treasury Department, to coordinate their approach to crypto. Although the order doesn't lay out specific policy prescriptions, it does ask the Treasury Department to issue a report on the future of money and payment systems. The order is meant to build on the U.S.'s counter-ransomware strategy. Today's episode was produced by Will Jarvis and Sean Powers. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode. We had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record Media. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.